Clear. Welcome to the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast, Hangar Classics. One of the most popular segments in the whole history of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast is Amy Loboda telling us about the time in 2001 when she had to ditch her Cessna 210 with herself, two adults, and two children on board into the Gulf of Mexico. Regular listeners know that Amy is a great teacher of flying. She instructs about all aspects of aviation, starting with primary student pilots and on through all of the ratings. And it's just like Amy that she's taken her very stressful and personal ditching experience and made it into another way that she can help us all become better, safer pilots. In this UCAP highlight, Amy shares with us the entertaining and sobering story of this potentially dire incident and the lessons that we can all learn from it to make our flying safer. This UCAP Hangar Classic is from episode number 68, which was recorded in February of 2008 to write a check and it's not right yeah yeah so uh, another subject that came up in the forums this is uh, I'll read a little snippet here this is from pilot bill from Texas pilot bill writes I read a post on the AOPA forums that referenced Amy Loboda ditching a Cessna in the Gulf of Mexico in 2001 he says I'd like to hear more about that now I can imagine that uh, first of all assuming there's some truth to this I can imagine that that this is a very sensitive subject and and reliving it is kind of a mixed thing but Amy is there anything you can tell us or share with us about uh, I this think thing? I think I've come around from the post traumatic stress syndrome if that's what you're asking. <laughs> so this well, this did happen, huh? This did well, happen. Do, do they yeah. actually call that post traumatic splash syndrome? Yeah, 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 yeah. You can. All right, Dave. I'm coming days. out there for you. I'm coming after you. For yeah, that's that. right. He's halfway there, Dave. Be careful. That's right. Only because I had not yet gotten my seaplane rating at that point. Oh. <laughs> that would have made it okay, right? That would have made it okay. What happened? Right. The seaplane rating is good for takeoffs. The landings the are okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, it was one of the better landings I've ever made, and uh, courtesy of the lovely 210 that I was flying that day. Um, because uh, with the wheels up, it's not that hard to make a really pretty be- belly landing, uh-huh. um, you know, especially on a calm wind morning in a flat sea, and you can pretty much land whichever direction you want to land in. Now, I wanted to land on the airport, but I wasn't. There was no way that was going <laughs> to happen. Um, but about a mile and a half offshore, somewhere apparently um, fairly close to a, a dredging barge. Um, I was able to touch down very nicely on the water, right on the sweet spot of the airplane, um, because nobody complained about the landing. Um, They just got wet. I had, a, this, I had right? a, well, I can afford to be a little cavalier about it at this point. You know, it was a failure of the crankshaft on an engine that had 1,500 hours and was 12 years old. Um, it was not the kind of crankshaft that typically failed on that engine. Um, so you can put me down as one of the, what, 2% of engine, uh, c- catastrophic engine failures that just happen. Mm-hmm. And the NTSB even took that crankshaft and looked at it, and the best they could say was fatigue. They uh-huh. really didn't give a good explanation um, to anybody's satisfaction of what they thought happened. Uh, the the consensus from the NTSB was that there was one of the cylinders that wasn't torqued 100% properly properly. Um, 
I mean, and we're not talking off by much, which is why I have a hard time buying it, um, from a top overhaul eight years before. Yeah. Eight years and and how many hours? Yeah, a lot of hours. That that would would normally affect a crankshaft, just mm -hmm. an under-torque cylinder. Yeah. Right. So, go ahead. Go ahead. And then I'll I'll get to the ditching. I'm getting there. Okay. (laughs) So, so again, causes. Um, Effect is it sounds like a cherry bomb going off in your engine. Uh Uh-huh. Nobody wants to hear that sound in a single-engine airplane when climbing out over water. And why was I climbing out over water? Well, you don't climb out over land in Key West. Mm, Okay, yep. Uh, The airport wants you to go away. (laughs) And there are so many directions you can go in, but land ain't one of them. And the reason why is because you've got the Naval Air Station to to one direction. So even if you were trying to stay over the chain of islands, you really couldn't because you've got to go around their airspace. I was IFR headed to Grand Cayman. And so, therefore, I was right out over the water and climbing steadily, heavily loaded, five people on board. Headed to the uh, Tadpoe intersection. That is correct, Tadpoe. And, in fact, it was in the turn to Tadpoe. I'd just been cleared for the turn to Tadpoe that the engine went off on me and uh, gave me no indications prior to that moment that it was going to go. Now, what was the weather? Was the weather IFR? No, no, the weather was not IFR, but when you're going international like that, you're on on IFR. I understand. I like just wanted that. to kind of paint the picture here. So, yes. Uh, okay, go ahead. It was, it was a lovely morning, and I stayed in the turn, pushed the nose over, because I am a glider pilot, and that's what you do, and uh, put my finger back on the button and said Mayday to the same controller I just spoke to 10 seconds before. Yeah. And uh, I looked down and saw zero rpm and i looked up and saw a spinning prop and that pretty much answered the question for me (laughs) okay so then what happened (laughs) it's a non-feathering prop too that's right that's right yeah i mean there's 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 not a whole lot you can do although i did pull the pitch in fact i pulled it so hard that i pulled it completely it was out like 14 inches (laughs) a little extra right arm strength there girl yeah i saw the airplane about a week later and i was like wow that's interesting and the uh the fa investigator asked me why is the seat so far forward and i looked at him and i said that's where i fly with it Uh uh The seat track didn't fail. (laughs) In fact, it's exactly where I left it. (laughs) Um, What's nice about that is that that anybody who sits behind me is a first-class passenger. They get really nice. Uh And and there was a tremendous egress. I really want to applaud Cessna. The airplane held together beautifully. It broke in exactly the places it was supposed to break, and there were very few surprises. There's only seven items on the Cessna 210 ditching list. I did them all and uh, touched down, and it took me about three seconds to realize that I needed to be outside of the airplane because I had a face full of water. Um, When the airplane touched down, the fuselage did what it was supposed to do, and it bent, um, which compressed the windscreen in such a manner that it popped out. Uh, oh, wow. About a 12-inch hole in the middle of the windscreen. Wow, okay. And that's where the water came from. Ah, uh, okay. So only the front seat passengers had, and, and the 
the right seat passenger and the and the pilot had that issue. Um, everybody else, because of the way the airplane sits in the water with the engine kind of down, even though it was fully loaded, um, were pretty much sitting high and dry for for about a minute, uh-huh. um, which was enough time. But once I was out to bang on the window and say uh, hello, and time uh, to go. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, Amy. And yes. When uh, one one of the tips that they gave us when when we went through uh, pre Cayman departure ditching training there in Key West mm-hmm. was the idea of op- wedging the door open with a flip flop or a sandal or a tennis shoe or something like that, so that you didn't have to worry about the the fuselage distorting and jamming the door shut. Did you do anything like that? No, because I was in a situation at 1,500 feet above the ground in a turn when I lost. You didn't have much time. No. What I did do, though, is I had the doors open, and in the 210, if you open the doors and then let the handle flip back down again. It can't close. It can't close. Cool. Yeah, okay. you, did the, you did the equivalent of this. Yeah. And quite inadvertently, I might let you know. So how far, where where were you in relation to shore or or some vessel of some sort? Oh, the, the, we weren't in the water for five minutes. Uh-huh. Um, again, like I said, apparently I was within 300 yards of a dredging barge because that's who came and picked us up in his little putt-putt. Um, he came right on over and he dragged us on and looked at me and said, I can get that out of there for you. <laughs> well, such service, huh? Would, would you like I to use that again him. sometime? And uh, I said, how, how deep that's was not the water? my problem anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have been told the water was 30 feet. I was not there when they brought the airplane up. Um, I had a couple of kids, um, one of whom wasn't mine, and uh, a lot of responsibilities I had to take care of. So I, once I had cleared with the NTSB, I left town and brought everybody back home. Um, and then uh, monitored from afar the um, process of bringing the airplane uh, right. back. So, so you guys got out of the airplane. What, did you inflate a raft, or how did that work? didn't need to inflate a raft. But let me tell you, there's a couple of tips that I need, need people to understand. Um, when you have a situation where you have a face full of water, you don't have a lot of time to think. And I pretty much had three thoughts. One, don't inhale, that's water. Okay, good. That's a good one, yeah. Okay, was where's the door? And reached over, and first my hand went right through, the window was open, right through, and I thought, oh, you could get out that way. And I went, yeah, wait a second. And reached again and caught the door itself and just pushed it, and it just very easily opened, wide open. Okay, because in the 210, the wings are resting up on the water until they fill up with water. And the fuselage is actually under the water, but you've still got a fair amount of air in there. But everything, it's filling up. It's filling up through the air vents and everything else um, while you're sitting there. Um, So I thought, okay, out. And then I realized I'm still in my seat. Well, why? Seatbelt. You have to remember to take off your seatbelt. Yeah. Uh So you need to brief your passengers that once everything stops moving, the door's still in the same place it was before. And whether you can see it or not, it's there. Know where it is and know how to open it. And two, you've got to take off your seatbelt. Every one of my passengers had to stop and think, why am I still in my seat? Mm -hmm. Oh, 
seatbelt, which slowed every one of us down. Uh-huh. You don't want them to take it off until things stop moving, but you do want them to take it off and get out because First they're not going to get it out stops until moving. they yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, something else. If it ain't attached to you, it's not coming out with you. Yep. That includes shoes and, you know, but it also includes life vests. And the life vests that I carry in my airplane now are little fanny packs that are very easy to talk people into putting on first. Ah, okay. Because you, the pilot, will not have time if you have a catastrophic failure like I had. You will not have time to put a life vest on. So if you're over water, you have them wear the PFD. Absolutely. uh, Absolutely. I simply have people wear the PFD. I put the PFD on. You watch. I'll take off from Oshkosh. If I'm going back over the lake, I have no fear of water. I don't don't mind flying a single-engine airplane over water. This is not, you know, oh, I'll never do that again. That's not what happened in this case. The airplane doesn't know the difference. What I change is I've always got the life jackets on board wherever I go. And when I know I'm going to be over water or I suspect I'm going to be over significant water, I have the life vest so that I can put it on so that when I'm over water, it's on. Mm -hmm. That's all. And I have the kind of life vests that are comfortable enough, whether you choose to get the little horse collar one, whether you choose to get the really nice ones that they've got that um, are a little bit like a vest, but they're just real thin. Uh, The helicopter pilots use them a lot. They're not not that much more expensive. We're talking $10 a piece more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what was the general... What was the general demeanor of your passengers? I mean, did they, they were cope pretty well? Happy. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, you saved their lives. <laughs> yeah. But let's, did any of them any of them freak way. out? I mean, were they were they yeah. pretty calm about the whole thing? Yeah. I, mean, I had I had good swimmers. Um, let's see. My oldest daughter um, was very quick to note to mention that she had both shoes with her. Okay. okay. How? Why? From some small miracle, she'd lost all her shoes at the hotel in Key West, um, and was down to. Her um, the booties that you wear on the beach uh-huh. and in the water, and I had pretty much told her, and I'm talking to a nine-year-old, you need to remember this, that that's it. She's going to have to wear them for the entire vacation in Grand Cayman because I will not buy her another pair of shoes. And <laughs> remembering this, this child, here we are, floating in the water. The airplane disappears in about a minute because it finally filled up with water and did a little Titanic in imitation as it went down. And um, she looks at me and she says, Mom, I have my shoes. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, you know, you're very cavalier about this, but so did the aircraft go beneath the surface while you were floating there before the boat arrived? Oh, yes. Yes, oh, man. I'm sorry. That's for a 210. Okay. That's just wrong, man. Yeah. That's just wrong. 210 with 90 gallons of fuel on it, you know? I mean, it's not going to float for very long. And um, it, there was a little moment of just, uh, and I could see exactly how I'd landed because I had one horizontal uh, stabilizer, that, stabilizer that was bent up. So I had definitely done a full flare landing. And I have to tell you, without flaps, I never put the flaps down. And I did that because when you put the flaps down, you do two things. You obstruct your egress. Because when you come out that door, the first thing you're going to hit is that big flap Uh in the face. Ah, okay. 
Okay, or in my case, in the back of the head because I came out backwards, right over the top of the, right over the top of the chair, the seat that I was in. Um, the other thing is, you run out of elevator, with no power at all, on that airplane, you'll run out of elevator. Woo, not a good thing. Yeah, you know? not a good thing so when you, you got to touch down get on water. The full flare that you need to touch down on the water. I was a, at a full flare, actually touched down so smoothly that I skipped on the water the first time and then caught that tail on the second touchdown and it went just like a duck yeah just like a duck and then nose in and kind of bobbed for a minute and sat there and started filling up with water but you guys need to understand (laughs) everybody got out of that airplane within about 10 seconds Uh uh-huh Okay. I know that it sounds like it took a long time for me to think these things the way I describe it, but I can tell you uh, the, the vision in my head is as clear to me. Oh, sure. That memory yeah. is, is just burned and printed that it was just boom, 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 out. I looked up, and there was my right seat passenger looking at me out of the airplane. She, it, she got out exactly just like I did, Okay. And we looked in and saw the rest of the people in there and started banging and both ducked under and actually went in. And I yanked on my daughter's shirt. And it was about then that everybody remembered seatbelts and boom, everybody came out. Okay. So now you're floating in the water and the airplane sinks. Did you at that point know there was a boat coming or was there a moment where you're going like... Oh, yeah, I could see the guy coming. You could see it. Okay. All right. Oh, yeah, I could see the guy coming at us. There's another one coming from... I'm starting to think, gee, I hope they don't run us over. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm telling the kids to stop picking the cards up off the water. Come here, you know. Uh-huh. I mean, it's good. I have Florida kids who learn to swim as infants, and I was very comfortable, you know, with that. And they had life jackets on, and they weren't even inflated. People, were, we were just kind of like sitting there on the water. I'm yeah. going, "There's the boat. It's coming. Come here. Don't swim away. Damn it. You know. Well, you know when I yeah." When I first and I, heard, and it, I did keep counting. One thing I compulsively kept going doing, and that's the only reason I know that I was pretty stressed, was I kept going one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, okay. <laughs> got them all. All right, yeah, yeah, all got right. them all exactly. <laughs> so and did, you're just so elated, you don't really care at that right, point about sure. the equipment. So now, and it, so, uh, go ahead, Jeb. Well, kind of a um, uh, related, unrelated question or, or extracurricular question here. Um, I know you were doing, for example, uh, as part of the Cayman Caravan, you were doing the ditching briefing, the overwater flight briefing. Yes. And looking back on your experience with this particular uh, episode, was there ah. anything that you did not put into that briefing uh, in the unlikely event you ever have to do this again? Oh, yes. What would yes, you do differently? And I guess thirdly, to those who have yet to experience such a thing, is there any single recommendation you would make? Yes, here's a couple of them. Things I've done differently. We talked about the life jackets, okay? One other thing is uh, you mentioned, uh, what about that life raft? Well, I didn't go back for it, but let me tell you why I even had to go back for it. It weighed 35 pounds. It was behind the front seat, and behind the front seat, I had two children, neither of whom was capable of pulling that life raft out with them. I now have a life raft that still is certified rated for the same people I need it to be rated for, but only weighs 15 pounds. Wow. And I'm very careful about 
who sits with the life raft. I make sure. sure that they know how it works. I keep the tags on it that says how it works because it's got a label that tells you how to work it just in case you forget everything I told you. And I make sure they know that so they don't freak out. Okay? Um, and my children had actually been to the pool and actually had the opportunity to activate a, a life raft. So I can't beat myself up for my kids' briefing. They got it. The problem was when it was time to get out, it was time to get out. Mm-hmm. And they did. And I looked at that and thought, you know what? The boat's coming. I'm not going back in that airplane. Because it, you could tell it was about to go down, and sure. I'm thinking, why would I want to be in there, and it's sinking like a stone, right. trying to grab this, this, which isn't really that heavy underwater, understand that, but you're not underwater when you're getting ready to land this thing. So these are things I've changed. I've changed the way I brief my passengers. Um, I um, changed it a little bit. I'm, I'm very cognizant on every flight I ever take of oper- teaching them how to operate the seatbelts and talking about that seatbelt briefing. I also never tell them to wait until I tell them to do something because there's always the chance that I might not be conscious to tell them mm-hmm. to get out of the airplane, that they need to know to do this themselves and not to wait for me, wait till it stops moving, but not to wait for me. <laughs> yeah, and I, I make always- sure they, that they can open and close the doors. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, it, it, basically, if if we land on something that's not an airport, and the airplane is like, you know, broken or, or whatever, I said, don't just get out of the airplane, get away from the airplane, get out, get away. And said, so if you stop to ask a question, you will be talking to yourself because I'm going to be getting out of the airplane. <laughs> um, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to be over there. One more thing, which is I really talk to people to think carefully about who they seat next to one of their exits. Mm-hmm. You've yes. got to have somebody. The airlines don't do this just because. You right. have to have somebody capable of opening and operating the exit and being actual a part of the team that helps make a strong egress. You don't want to put that person in the back. You want to put that person near the exit mm-hmm. so that the airplane, uh, so that you can get out. And um, I've had a lot of people talk to me, well, my kid loves to sit in the right seat. And, you know, and I said, well, what kind of airplane are you flying? Well, a Dakota. You might want to think about that. Because you're going to have to go over that kid to get out. Yeah, I I have to go over anybody to get out of my airplane. And it won't phase me in the least. I will go right over them like a steamroller. I'm going to hook, I'm going to unhook their seatbelt on the way by. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, Amy, I had a had a quick question. I've wondered about this in the past uh, from uh, when I first heard about this, but you were at about fifteen hundred feet. You said on your climb yes. out. Yes. Do you have any cognizance of how long it was from when it failed to when you touched down? Less than two minutes. That's what I thought. That's not a long time to prep. There wasn't a lot of prepping to do. One of the things I teach all of my students is to actually. You you do have time to think about what just happened if you keep flying the airplane. Remember, what did I do first? I kept the airplane in the turn back towards shore and pushed the nose over. Why did I push the nose over? 
because I was in a climb and you were you're not going to keep your, yeah, I was flying the airplane. You're not going to keep your, your best glide speed unless you push the nose over to best glide from a climbing situation. Sure. Now you've got to think it through. Where's best glide? Right. But if you're not going for best glide with a catastrophic engine failure, you have a you have your first problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're shortchanging yourself a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, your problem is now greater than what's caused the engine failure. Yeah. And so, I, it's often occurred to me, you know, of, of the the only silver lining in this whole thing was that it happened to you, you know, a, a minute or two out of Key West. And not an hour and ten minutes into the flight to Cayman, because we'd have never known what that crankshaft looked like. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's absolutely right. An hour, an hour out, I would have been at eight thousand feet and had a whole bunch more time to think about what was going to happen. And you know, you say that, yeah, yeah, you know, but an hour out, yeah, I would have been over Cuba still. And well, I might an have hour out, you would have been getting over that uh, that trench on the south side of Cuba where the water goes yeah. to, what, 13,000 feet? Water goes to 13,000 feet, but I would have been at an altitude that I very likely would have been very close to land again mm-hmm. to be able to, yeah. to, to, to um, put it down. So I might have chosen still to put it in the water because, you know, depending on the kind of land you're looking at, quite frankly, around Key West, there's not a lot of choices. No. If you can't make the runway then you're probably putting it in the water. Right. You know, I'm not all that surprised that you, you very coolly handled the situation and, and saved your, you know, your, your passengers and so forth. But did it hit you at some point? You know, you're sitting in the boat with a blanket wrapped around you and, and suddenly, oh my goodness, what, what just happened? It doesn't work like that, Jack. Yeah, how does it work? What happened was, you keep thinking, um, I got a little confused I actually thought I was in Grand Cayman a couple times as we were because you went from that boat to the Coast Guard boat. Now you're going to the Coast Guard dock. You're looking at the you know the big, big uh, cruise boats, and I'm almost like, you know, I'm thinking kind of goofy thoughts. You're you're jumping all over the place, um, you know. And I'm talking to the insurance guy, and he's reminding me that maybe I want to call the NTSB, and you know, there were just a lot of different things. Um, they they ship you off you know, to the hospital just to check everybody out. And I'm still thinking about these kids need to be in dry clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really had a lot of different things I had to take care of. Passengers, you know, um, one passenger needed two stitches on her knee um, that took three and a half hours to get because they wanted to give her an MRI, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was a lot of complicating factors. Yeah. And so it really took a long time. And, and you never, it never really sunk in. I would say that the only reason I knew that I was having some post-traumatic stress syndrome was I didn't want to go flying a week later. And I had pushed myself and got back in an airplane and I had done all these things. Now, you guys need to understand that this is 2001 in the summer. And it was not until 9-11 that I started to have a severe reaction that made me think that maybe I had an issue. Mm-hmm. And it was a good six months. And yeah, quite frankly, I went to see somebody who specialized in first responders and did a couple therapy sessions with him. Um, 
And that really made a difference in understanding the kind of trauma that first responders have. When everything goes right and you do everything right and there was still an issue, okay, I lost the airplane. Mm-hmm. I lost the airplane. Yeah. And yes. you need to come around to, yeah, that happened. There was nothing yeah. you could do about it. Sure. You did everything right. And, yeah, there's a chance that could happen again that the airplane could come right out from under you again. And you're going to have to do the whole darn thing again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And and your your primeval fight or flight thing has to be overcome. And that took about six months. So I guess one of the things I need need to tell people is you scare yourself in an airplane, you're probably going to take a little while to get over that. And if you really want to fly, you're going to have to work at it. Because mm-hmm. it's not a, just going to go away. Yeah. A good uh, friend of mine suffered uh, through a, a fairly tragic fatal airplane crash down in South America some years ago. I believe it was uh, early 89. And uh, his boss was sitting front right seat in the aircraft that crashed and, and died in the accident. And my friend was sitting behind the co-pilot, I mean, behind the pilot seat, uh, faced backward, and was uh, injured pretty badly, uh, a long-time active pilot. Uh, he was a, a, a good deal of time uh, getting back in an airplane, starting to fly again, uh, starting to use an airplane again. Uh, now he flies regularly for his job, and, and, and uh, he's very comfortable. But but one of the things that helped him down the road was he uh, became active in a group for air crash survivors uh, and helped impart some of what he went through to other people. And in, in, in your story, Amy, I hear a little bit of you doing that on a, on, on a regular basis just in how you deal with passengers and how, and how you teach students. Absolutely, yes. And uh, again, I do do a safety seminar on um, briefing your passengers because I think that um, most of us fly with the most important people in our lives all the time. Mm-hmm. And what we're most afraid of is hurting them. And the best thing we can do is bring them in, make them part of the team that's going to have a successful um, emergency encounter. And I think that's what I did with my kids, and I think it made a big difference. And, uh, yeah, I do swear by it. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, that, ladies and gentlemen, is the off-field landing of the week, I'll tell you. <laughs> Good job, I, Amy. Good job. I have, one, I have one question, though, Amy. Yes. And, and feel free not to answer this question as you, as you choose. What was your drink of choice once you got to dry land that had the option? <laughs> and how many of them did you have? I can't tell you because I actually waited until my husband showed up because, as you remember, I was still in the same – actually, no, uh, the the, the uh, kind people at the uh, Key West FBO loaned me uh-huh. a dry T-shirt. But other than that, I was pretty much in the clothes on my back and hiding out from news reporters who I did not want to talk to that day. Um, one poor soul who actually was talking to me – and said, I'd like to interview that guy 
who was in the, who was the pilot of that airplane to, <laughs> to said, yeah, I bet you would. And we had a whole conversation for about five minutes about how badly he wanted to interview that guy. And I smiled and walked away. That was one of the most enjoyable things I did. That <laughs> I love it. I well, thank too. you, Amy, that's for sharing funny. that with us. That's uh, that's very instructional and and yeah. uh, and very uh, impressive. Congratulations. Good job. Good you're job. Welcome. And. and- yeah, I, I know Amy's been reluctant to talk about this and uh, very, very much appreciate her doing so here. 